Most of you have heard of John and Charles Wesley. Maybe not all of you know their mom, Susanna Wesley. John and Charles Wesley had an incalculable impact on the the kingdom of God through their preaching and hymn writing. But their mother, Susanna Wesley, was not anybody that you would necessarily think was a great Christian if you met her on the street. But one great thing she did is that in addition to John and Charles, she had 17 other children. And what was her secret to being the mother of two baseball teams plus a manager? Her secret was prayer. She found time to pray. As a matter of fact, when the noise and activity of the many, many children was going to prevent her from praying, she had a practice of simply taking her apron and putting it over her head. And her children learned when mama's apron is over her head, she's praying for us. And so with a simple piece of fabric, she created time alone with the Lord on behalf of her children. And so we've been looking at our topical series in Ephesians 6, 1 through 4, and you can turn there if you want. We've been looking at parenting for God's glory And we've just used Ephesians 6, 1 through 4 as our home base to derive some principles for parenting. And we're talking about parenting to the glory of God because results are his business, not ours. And so we do what is right in order to glorify him and let him do what he will do then. And so today I want to talk about what I think might be the most powerful principle as we look at parenting for God's glory. And so far, just a review We've looked at the principle of heart motivation. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. We've looked at the principle of respectful submission. Honor your father and mother. We've looked at the principle of natural outcomes. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. We have looked at the principle of gracious relationship. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. We have looked at the principle of consistent consequences but bring them up in the discipline of the Lord and then last time we looked at the principle of divine truth bring them up in the instruction of the Lord well today I want to move beyond Ephesians 6 1 through 4 and look ahead just a few verses to examine the principle of prayerful parenting the principle of prayerful parenting and as always we want to remind ourselves that all scripture is inspired by God and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. So if this is a topical series, it doesn't mean it doesn't apply to you. All scripture applies to us in one way or another. Now in Paul's admonition to the churches that were in and around the city of Ephesus, Paul warns them and he wants them to be unified. He wants the Jews and the Gentiles to be unified. Chapters two and three speaks of this. He wants the churches sanctified. He wants them to, to, as Ephesians 4 says, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which they've been called. And then he began in verse 4, defining kind of the nuts and bolts of what it means to walk in that manner, the obedient life and what that looks like. And of course, he addresses the Christian family, first the marriage in chapter 5, and then children and parents in chapter 6, where we've been. But to top it all off, to have the spiritual strength to be unified in the church, to have the spiritual strength to walk in the manner worthy of the gospel, to have the spiritual strength to obey in all these areas of life that he gives us in chapters four and five. In chapter six, he gives us the famous spiritual armor of God. And he caps off the spiritual armor by exhorting us as the final command in this beautiful epistle to prayer. 
And he says in chapter 6, beginning in verse 18, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Now the question is, how do we connect this exhortation to prayer with the context of Ephesians 6, 1 through 4, the exhortation to believing children and to believing parents? How do we make that connection? Well, just to be vulnerable for a moment, and I I speak for myself and for Sylvia, we would agree on this, that for us, being a praying parent is not an academic discussion. It's not a theory. It's not a biblical study. The Lord has in numerous ways forced us to our knees for our children at various times and in various circumstances. And so, We understand what that means. We know what it's like to have nothing but prayer when all other resources are exhausted. We know what it's like to experience devastation and confusion. We know what it is to pray and to weep and to beg God and to go beyond what mere human parents can do by simply taking a problem to the throne. And we know what it is to accept that we will wait longer, perhaps even in our lifetimes, to see the graciousness that God will provide. So I say that as a sideline that in this parenting series we've been doing, if you forget every other principle that we've taught, if you'll learn to pray for your children, big, bold, begging, brash, brave prayers, if you'll learn to weep for your children at the knee of your father, then this series will have been worth it. And so that's my hope for you today. But how do we connect those? How do we connect the exhortation to prayer and the exhortation to believing children and believing parents? Well, I want to examine how we can pray as parents. And again, we're away from our usual practice of considering a single passage of Scripture verse by verse and looking at more of a bigger picture during this series. And so let me just give you kind of the strategy for this morning. First of all, I want to show you the elements of a parent's prayer. And then we'll look at examples of a parent's prayer Now I'd like to show you the essence of a parent's prayer. So elements, examples, and the essence. So first, let's look at the elements of a parent's prayer. Now, Ephesians 6.18 is a glorious verse for a preacher. And let me tell you why. It says, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. You know what that means? That means I can take huge liberties in applying this because it's all prayer at all times. And so what I want to do then in in taking that a little bit of liberty is to give you an outline for prayer for your children. I think you'll find useful and it will apply no matter what stage your children are in. It's very common sense and I think it'll bring comfort to your soul that your children have been comprehensively fully brought to the throne of grace. So to help us understand this outline I'd like to give you, I want to have you turn with me to the Old Testament to Nehemiah chapter 2. Nehemiah chapter 2, and we'll use him as an example. His prayers are legendary. We have 10 prayers of Nehemiah recorded, and they concern his deep desire for God's people as they're returning from exile to Jerusalem, to, to Jerusalem and to Judah. And so his prayers are, they're very fatherly in tone and in heart. And so we as parents can really take some good lessons from Nehemiah. So let me give you three elements of a parent's prayer. First of all, pray for the moment. Pray for the moment. Nehemiah is the official cupbearer of the king. This is a trusted official. This is not a lowly position. This is a high up position. 
And we see the situation here in Nehemiah 2, beginning in verse 1. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, Why is your face sad, seeing that you were not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid. I said to the king, Let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Then the king said to me, What are you requesting? The most powerful man in the world just asked Nehemiah, What do you want? So I prayed to the God of heaven. He prayed to the God of heaven. Then he presented his case to the king who granted his request. Now, let me just short circuit your thinking here. This is not a lesson on the fact that short, instant prayers are always answered by God. You always get what you want. The lesson here is that praying for the moment was the natural response of Nehemiah. It was what he instinctively did. Can you imagine standing before the most powerful man on earth and he asks you a question and you say, hang on a second, I just need to consult with God. But that's what he did. It was instinctive for him. As a parent, no matter whether your children are in the womb or out of the home, you can pray for their moments. Pray pray for what they're facing at that moment. You can pray for them in the womb. You can pray, Father, help this little one to be comfortable, to sense my love, to develop as he ought to today. And as he hears the songs of our faith sung, may he even now begin to sense and know that you made him and that you love him. You can pray on routine days. You can pray, Father, help my child this day to be excellent, to be obedient, to be diligent. Help him to sense your love and care even as I provide love and care for him. You you can pray for him on difficult days. Father, help my child today as he faces this challenge. Help him to honor you, to be courageous, to learn and to grow from this experience. And listen, if in your home you will establish a culture of praying for the moment, that is an incalculable gift. It teaches them your abiding love for them and it teaches them that God is accessible 24-7. What a great gift to give to your children. So we pray for the moment. Let me give you another element of a parent's prayer. Pray for the season. Pray for the season. Look with me at Nehemiah chapter 6. Nehemiah chapter 6. When Nehemiah was home rebuilding, leading the rebuilding of the wall of Jerusalem, he was surrounded by opposing enemies, much like today, who didn't believe Israel had the right to exist as a nation. And so we see the situation in Nehemiah 6, beginning in verse 1. Now when Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem the Arab and the rest of our enemies heard that I had built the wall and that there was no breach left in it, although up to that time I had not set up the doors and the gates, Sanballat and Geshem sent to me saying, Come, let us meet together at Hakafarim in the plain of Ono. But they intended to do me harm. So Nehemiah found out about their assassination plot and very shrewdly he made excuses. Verse 3, And I sent messengers to them saying, I'm doing a great work and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? And they sent to me four times in this way and I answered them in the same manner. So the enemies are desperate. They can't kill them. So now they're going to resort to slander and even to blackmail. In verse 5, in the same way, Samballot for the fifth time sent his servant to me with an open letter in his hand. In it was written, 
It is reported among the nation, and Geshem also says it, that you and the Jews intend to rebel. That is why you are building the wall, and according to these reports, you wish to become their king. And you also have set up prophets to proclaim concerning you in Jerusalem, there is a king in Judah. And now the king will hear of these reports. So now come and let us take counsel together. Then I sent to him saying, no such things as you say have been done, for you are inventing them out of your own mind. Now this is a massive assault, an assassination plot, an attempt to slander Nehemiah back to the Persian king who had let him come in the first place. And Nehemiah, acting very much as the father of Israel, discerning the spiritual danger that Israel was being tempted to cower in fear. So he prayed for this season of attack, this season of hardship and trial. In verse 9, for they all want to frighten us, thinking their hands will drop from the work and it will not be done. But now, O God, strengthen my hands. And he prays for protection in verse 14. Remember Tobiah and Sanballat, O my God, according to these things that they did. This was a season of pressure, a season of temptation. By the way, in verses 10 through 13, others were trying to trick Nehemiah into sinning. And so how does he meet this season? He meets it with prayer. Your children all have seasons. They have seasons of development. Maybe they have seasons of being more difficult. For some of your kids, that's from ages 1 to 18. For others, it's smaller in duration. They have seasons of facing personal hardship that you can't fix. They have seasons of even moral crises. An infant starts life in a certain season and that is the season of vying to be boss of the whole household to make the whole family do everything that that she wants an adult child has seasons of success seasons of failure seasons of hardship seasons of pain and so we pray for and you pray with all of your children of all ages for the particular season that they're in you pray for the moment pray for the season let me give you a third element of a parent's prayer, and that is pray for the lifetime. Pray for the lifetime. Turn to Nehemiah 13, right at the very end of the book. The end of Nehemiah shows a shocking scene in which Nehemiah defends and disciplines his beloved people of Israel. He says in verse 23, in in those days also, I saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab, and Nehemiah goes ballistic I can't even believe that this is in the Bible. And half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod and they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. And so he's, he's, he's heartbroken about this. And I confronted them and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair. I mean, th- that's preaching. <laughs> How would you like it if I did that? You're in sin. Let me just rip some of your hair out. I've been confronted many times. You'll get it when you go home. (laughs) And he forces them to make an oath. I made an oath. I made them take an oath in the name of God saying, you shall not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons or yourselves. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin on account of such women? Among the many nations, there was no king like him and he was beloved by his God and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, foreign women made even him to sin shall we then listen to you and do all this great evil and act treacherously against our god by marrying foreign women and he prays two prayers 
One, an imprecatory prayer against the enemies of Israel, and the second, a general prayer for the life of Israel. He says in verse 29, Remember them, O my God, because they have desecrated the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. He becomes like a mama bear defending her cubs. And yeah, he might be harsh and he might have ripped out their hair, but it's because he loves them and desires their sanctification, desires them to be set apart. And then he prays a, prays a general prayer for the life of Israel. Remember them, and at the very end, remember me, O oh my God, for good. This isn't a prayer of Nehemiah to remember him personally. It's a prayer for God to remember his heart, remember his mission for his people. It's a prayer for spiritual success. And I would encourage every one of you to develop a list of lifetime prayers for your children. And this list can and really should be child-specific, specific to the talents and the, the leanings and the weaknesses and the needs of that particular child. Just as an example, you might say, Father, for this boy, help him to learn the discipline of loving the preached word, to be a good church member someday, to watch his tongue and his temper, to be a family man that inspires confidence, to be a man worth imitating, to be a success in his career so that he might bless the church, to use his spiritual gifts with fervor and determination, and to be an example of loving Christ to all around him. And that's a prayer that you pray over and over and over again, different ones for different children. If I could put it this way, praying the lifetime prayers for your children ought to be one of your last acts on this earth. That before you go to see God, you commit your children to God. So pray for the moment, pray for the season, pray for the lifetime. I'd like to show you some very practical prayers of some parents in the Bible. What about some examples of parents' prayer? And for the sake of time, I'm not going to have you turn with me unless you want to because we have a lot of scripture we're going to cover. Let me give you a, a kind of a starting point here because I think we need to acknowledge, first of all, the first prayer we would look at is the prayer for fruitfulness. The prayer for fruitfulness because we need to acknowledge that for some, the prayer is not for their children, but just simply to have children. And that has been a huge pain for millennia, for many a mother, we might call this the prayer for fruitfulness. First Samuel 1 records the, records the desperate prayer of Hannah who could not have children. And, and even she was even willing to give up her child to the service of the Lord if she would only grant, his, grant her request. And her famous prayers of chapter 1 and 2 of First Samuel 1 reveal the heart of a deeply devoted and faithful worshiper of Yahweh, a woman who loved and trusted the Lord implicitly, even in her grief and in her angu- anguish. And, and for her... The Lord chose to answer. First Samuel one twenty seven. For this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. And she has the baby boy named Samuel. And on top of the birth of Samuel, her son, she received from the Lord five more children. And so we thank the Lord for that. He was gracious. But for others, God is more mysterious. Anna, who is the Greek version of Hannah, appears in the Gospel of Luke as the only female prophet in all the New Testament. She was widowed after only seven years of marriage and now is, is presented in the Gospel of Luke as a, as a pious and faithful worshiper. She's a woman who's at least 84 years old and by some estimations perhaps as old as 105. And she spends her days in the temple praying and serving and worshiping. And she's highlighted in Luke 
as one of the few people who ever saw the baby Jesus. And she gives thanks to God for the Messiah who has come. She begins to proclaim the coming of Christ to anyone who would, who would listen. Now, the text doesn't tell us whether or not Anna had children, but Luke 2, very interestingly, names her father and not her former husband. It's a possible indicator that they never had children. And in an era in which children always took care of their elderly family members, it's very noticeable that nobody's taking care of her. And so it could be that she had no children, or it could be that she had outlived all of her children. In any case, whatever her family hopes were, whatever her aspirations, whatever her dreams were, they were fully and completely replaced now by only her hope and aspiration for the Lord Jesus. That was her sole goal. That was her sole inspiration. That was her sole focus. It wasn't her family any longer. It was just the Lord. And how happy Anna was the day she met Jesus. Maybe she didn't have children of her own, but she used her final years to proclaim the greatest child of all as one of the few human beings in all history to meet baby Jesus. So yes, the prayer of fruitfulness, whether you are Hannah or whether you are Anna, God will be faithful to you. He will answer that prayer. But then as God does bless with children, there's a very natural prayer to pray. We might call this the prayer for favor. The prayer for favor. Abraham had been promised by God that his elderly wife Sarah would bear him a son and this son would be the one through whom all the promises of God for a nation and a people would be fulfilled. But Abraham and Sarah got impatient and so you know the story. Sarah wrongly had Abraham go to her maidservant to have her bear a son for them and enter into the scene little Ishmael. And this caused all kinds of difficulties. It was an affront to God that they didn't trust his word. It caused massive marital and family conflict as you can imagine But Abraham kept waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting and still Sarah didn't conceive. When Ishmael was 13, old enough to begin to act like a man and old enough to be an heir, God promised Abraham once again that Sarah would bring forth a son. Quote, she shall become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. Genesis 17, 16. What did Abraham do? He chuckled. He laughed because he was 100 and Sarah was 90 And so that was a riot to him. That's impossible. And so Abraham prayed a prayer that made sense to him and probably makes sense to us as well. In Genesis 17, verse 18, Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. This is common sense. He's saying basically, look, Lord, Ishmael's right here. He's coming of age. I'm 100. I don't know how much longer I'm going to be around. Why not just make him the child of promise? Why not just bless him? God answered, no, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. But God is a father, and he understood the heart of a father. And so he continued, as for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father 12 princes and I will make him into a great nation. It's a prayer for favor. Listen, in our weird liberal culture that no longer values competition, parents still want their children to experience favor. And let me prove it to you. Competitive sports today are considered politically incorrect. 
And so you have, for example, the non-competitive soccer game in which everyone is there just to have fun and build each other up where everyone is the best player and everyone gets a trophy. And so the parents are on board with this and, and they, not only are they cheering for their child's team, but they're cheering for the other team as well. But then you get into a problem because when your child is taking the ball up the field toward the goal and makes a brilliant move that leaves his opponent tripping over his own feet and falling on his face, inwardly, secretly, you're in conflict because the fact that your kid made his opponent fall on his face gives you pleasure and you can't explain it. And so, being a good liberal, you excuse yourself and you, you go to the car, you put up the sunshade and you make sure nobody can see you and you go, yeah, that's my kid, that's right, that's right. And then you go back and you yell to the other team, you'll get them next time. Why? Because every parent naturally wants favor on their children. That's natural, it's the way God made you. What happened to Ishmael, the non-chosen son, the, the unelect one, so to speak, from a purely human standpoint? Well, as you can imagine, his and his mother, Hagar, their, their presence in the household began to cause friction. Men, have a child with another woman and invite her to come live in your house. See what happens. And when Isaac, the miracle child, was just a, a little kid, they held a feast the day that he was weaned, and Ishmael is now about 16 and he's behaving badly and he's laughing even possibly at Isaac. And so Sarah told Abraham to get rid of the maiden and, and Ishmael. And this upset Abraham. This was his boy. This is his son. But God told him it was okay to go ahead and let them go. And so Abraham, Abraham said goodbye to his son Ishmael, the, the one that he had prayed for God to bless and in all likelihood never saw him again. The boy and his mother wandered the wilderness until they were out of water and in despair, but God intervened and saved them. And listen to the answer to prayer, the answer that Abraham didn't see in this lifetime. These words that would delight any parent, and God was with the boy. God was with the boy. Those are beautiful words for a parent to hear. God was with the boy. What an answer. But you know, sometimes the prayer for favor has to be substituted for something more immediate. We have another example of a parent's prayer. We might call this the, the prayer of desperation. The prayer of desperation. Second Samuel 11 and 12 records the sad story of King David allowing his lust to get the better of him and committing adultery with Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. And Bathsheba conceived and gave birth to a son. And you know the story, the Lord sent Nathan the prophet to confront David concerning his sin and the punishment for David would be that the child that was born of the adulterous affair would die. God had decreed it. And how did David respond? Well, fully knowing that the word of the prophet Nathan was authentic, when the baby became sick, Second Samuel 12 Records David therefore sought God on behalf of the child and David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground and the elders of his house stood beside him to raise him from the ground but he would not, he did not eat food with them and David did this for a week. I've prayed some desperate prayers for my children but I haven't taken it to the level of stopping everything including eating for a week to beg God on behalf of my child. And this is... This is such a hard time for David. I mean, the consequences were for his own sin and he knew that. And the child did die. But David's example of a prayer of desperation did not die. Don't let the fact 
that the boy died derail you from understanding that David did exactly the right thing. When your children are small, still in your home, you can not only pray, but you can act. You can have a personal impact on outcomes. But this is the time to learn to pray prayers of desperation because there will be a day when all you have is prayer. When that is your singular tool as a parent. So learn now. What does a prayer of desperation look like? It's often accompanied by sorrow. It's accompanied by grief. It's accompanied by tears. It's accompanied by a sense of helplessness before God. But it's always accompanied by a resulting tender comfort from God. The prayer of desperation is very much a defensive prayer. But we should also go on the offensive as well. Let me give you another example of a parent's prayer. We might call this the prayer for obedience. The prayer for obedience. When a child is small, you have the ability, you have the responsibility to control them. I've often said that the reason God made children tiny is that if you want them to go from point A to point B and they won't go, you simply go pick them up and put them there. That's why God made them little. If children are born six foot six inches, you don't give them commands, you give them suggestions. But there's a day when you let go of the reins. There's a day when you're done with that and when the best you can do is to mentor them if they'll still let you be a voice in their lives. So what do you pray? You pray for their obedience to the Lord. You pray for their heart. When we fast forward a couple of decades or so to the day when King David would give the crown, give the throne of Israel to his son Solomon. David has gathered all the materials, all the provisions to build the temple of God, but God told him that Solomon will not build the temple or that David will not build the temple Solomon will instead and so first chronicles 29 records a, a a giant ceremony in which the crown is officially transferred from David to Solomon and David prays a prayer of praise and worship toward God and I love this prayer because he clearly understands that what the true kingdom is he understands what's at stake is God's kingdom And he says, therefore, David blessed the Lord in the presence of all the assembly. And David said, listen to this kingdom prayer. Blessed are you, O Lord, the God of Israel, our father, forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all. In your hand are power and might, and in your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. And now we thank you, our God, and praise your glorious name. And at the end of his prayer, he prays for his boy. Solomon would be at least 20 and under the age of 30 at this point. And you would think after that massive kingdom prayer, you would expect that what he's going to pray is for Solomon to defeat all of his his enemies, to make a great and legendary name for himself, to rule with greatness. But he doesn't do that. He prays a short, succinct prayer reflecting that David knows what's most important. And here's how he ends his prayer. Grant to Solomon, my son, a whole heart that he may keep your commandments, your testimonies, and your statutes, performing all. How touching in, in front of Israel, he prays, grant to Solomon, my son. Not Solomon, the great king. Not Solomon, the ruler of the world. Not Solomon, the one who would be the wisest man to ever live. My son. And he just says, grant him a whole heart, meaning grant him true faith that's not just an external show of religious 
obedience. His whole prayer is let him obey the scriptures. And this is what God required of a king of Israel. Deuteronomy 17 And when he, a future king, sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priests, and it shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them. What a high and lofty prayer for your children that they would be ones who have true faith and consequently obey the Lord. Is a life submitted to the word of God. This is a life well lived. This is a life worth living. It's a life well rewarded. But what do you have to have to obey the word of God? Well, you have to have first salvation. And so let me give you another example of a parent's prayer. And this is the prayer of mediation. The prayer of mediation. Now, just to help you understand a little background, ancient believers in Yahweh before the formation of, of Israel as a nation Generally speaking, the father of the family, the patriarch, served also as the family priest, the mediator, as it were, for his family before God. And one example of an ancient man living in the patriarchal era sometime after Abraham, is very likely an Edomite, was a man named Job. Job had seven sons and three daughters, and these kids of this extremely wealthy man would hold regular family feasts. They were feasts that lasted for days as these adult children would gather together and feast for days at a time. And as one concerned for the spiritual welfare of his children, he would, as per custom, we might call it, intercede for them. Job 1 verse 5 says, And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them, and he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, It may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. So he would send for his children and he would consecrate them. This is a verb form of the word holy. In other words, he would holiness them. And he would send for them. And my guess is, that part of that, when it says he would send for them, he would demand that they confess their sins. He would say, tell me what you did, boys, girls. What did your brothers do? And he would find out, and then he would offer sacrifices on their behalf because he had concern for their spiritual well-being. Now, obviously, as New Testament Christians, we see immediately kind of a crude model of the true and only mediator, the great and only high priest, Jesus Christ, who continually intercedes for believers based on his own sacrifice. But the example of Job as a parent, I I don't think that should be lost on us. Now, he can't, in reality, be the mediator that Christ is. But in a time before the coming of the Lord and in a time before the law of Moses, Job took the example of Abel, the example of Noah, who offered sacrifices for sin to the Lord, what is Job's example? His example is is that he had a high and a significant concern that his children be right with God. That even if they didn't sin intentionally, he wants this covered. It's very interesting when it says that it may be that they have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. The word cursed here is actually a euphemistic use of the Hebrew word for bless. They may have blessed God in their hearts meaning that they tried to do something religious that didn't go right, like Nadab and Abihu who tried to offer strange fire and got french fried for it. And so he says, maybe they tried to bless God in some way that God doesn't want to be blessed. 
And so he's just covering his bases here with him. I want to tell you two things about Job. First of all, he's mindful of eschatology. That there will be a life after death and he wants more than anything else to see God in that life after death. And he says in one of the most stunning prophetic statements in all of the Old Testament, he says in Job 19, beginning in verse 25, for I know that my Redeemer lives and at the last he will stand upon the earth. That is a resurrected Jesus Christ in an eschatological future. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh, that is a resurrected Job, I shall see God. That's the first thing we know about Job. He has a concern for eschatology. The second thing we know about him is that he wants his children to see God in that life after death. In other words, Job wants to make sure his family is all together in the resurrection. And would they be? Well, the book of Job gives us the answer. Job is the story of how God proves a point to Satan. The point is is that God's faithful believers will never turn away from him no matter what affliction comes upon them. The true believer will never forsake the Lord but will always trust in him. And so to make this point, God allows Satan to take away Job's wealth, to take away his health, but worst of all, Satan causes the deaths of all 10 children at the same time due to a terrible storm that collapses the older son's house in the middle of one of those feasts and before Job could make sacrifice for whatever was going on. Now, the majority of the book consists of conversations between Job and his friends, and Job has to deal with the fact that while he didn't commit sin that caused this calamity, At times, he did respond sinfully to the calamity. And so God deals with Job. But then God has mercy on Job by giving him double all that he had before. He had lived 70 years. And the end of Job says he got 140 more, double. He had 7,000 sheep and he gets 14,000 sheep. He had 3,000 camels, gets 6,000 camels. He had 500 yoke of oxen and gets 1,000. He had 500 female donkeys and gets 1,000. He had seven sons and three daughters and gets seven sons and three daughters. Wait a minute. Everything doubled except for his children. Well, not exactly. Job would never get back the original 7,000 sheep, the original 3,000 camels, the original 500 yoke of oxen, the original 500 female donkeys, but apparently he would get back his dead children. And so getting the same number of children didn't replace the 10, it doubled them such that Job could count on being in eternity and when he sees his redeemer, it will be with 20 children. God was so gracious. Now, don't misunderstand. I'm not here to guarantee that your prayer of mediation, your beseeching God for the salvation of your children is a promise that every child will will be saved. Election is God's business and God's business alone. But we can say that the most important and most eternal prayer you'll pray for your children is that they would know Christ and submit to him. In my family, because of remarriage, I ended up with three, not two, but three godly grandmothers. And I remember at various times as a child in different parts of the country when we'd have large family gatherings, all three grandmothers who didn't know each other, they had something in common, and that's that they would beg their children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren to know Christ. 
I remember one grandmother in particular, she would always quote from Hebrews 12. She would say, look unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, so that we might all be together in that great beyond. She would always tell us, look unto Jesus. One of the amazing examples for us, prayers for fruitfulness, for favor, prayers of desperation, for obedience, for mediation. I want to finish off by talking about the essence of a parent's prayer. We've looked at the elements and the examples. I want to look at the essence of a parent's prayer. The essence of a parent's prayer. What's the heart? What's the core? What's the soul? What's the middle? What's the foundation? What's the substance of it? What is the non-negotiable starting point? It is a firm belief and acknowledgement in the total and complete sovereignty of God. You must start there. And scripture is loaded with the sovereignty of God. Psalm 115, verse 3, Our God is in the heavens. He does all that He pleases. Lamentations 3, 37 and 38, Who has spoken and it came to pass unless the Lord has commanded it? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that good and bad come? Of course, we're familiar with Romans 8, 28, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. 2 Chronicles 20, verse 6, O Lord, God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? You rule over all the kingdoms of the nations. In your hand are power and might so that none is able to withstand you. You're familiar with Psalm 24, verses 1 and 2. The earth is the Lord and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. You're familiar with Job 42, verse 2. I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. And to put it all in one neat little bow, one phrase, Psalm 135, verse 6, whatever the Lord pleases, he does. That is sovereignty. It makes me sad that so much has been written on praying as parents. Some of it's good, but what makes me sad is that much of it is written from a charismatic theological viewpoint of manipulating God with your prayer, of making God accomplish your will. For example, one author wrote just a couple of years ago about praying for your children, quote, you are prophets to your children. The more one grows in grace, the more prophetic one becomes. This doesn't mean you will start predicting the future. It means you will start creating it. Prayer is the way we write the future. That's not faith. That's black magic. We don't write the future. The Bible says God writes the future. And there's such a desperation on the part of parents to control the future of their children that it's very, very attractive to try to take control away from a sovereign God and claim that control for myself, which is not what prayer is about. What is prayer is about? We pray with a sense of knowing that our prayers are the means by which God will accomplish his will. That we are not aligning God with our will, we are aligning our wills with God's. Ultimately, all purposes belong to God. We trust that even when he seems silent, he has a larger picture in mind. And I I think about King David again. He had one son named Absalom, who was a warmonger, tried to take the throne from his father. Ironically, Absalom means father of peace. And in the course of the rebellion, Absalom is killed, never to be reconciled with his father. And David cries out, Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would I have died instead of you, O Absalom, my son? Then he had another son that we've already spoken of, a a baby boy who's never even given a name. God chose to take him in death. 
because of David's sin. But we get two glimmers of hope, two mercies of God who's sovereign over our prayers and over all events. First, David affirmed in the inspired text of 2 Samuel 12 that he will go to his child someday. And second, David comforted himself with a very practical means. God did more than that in comforting him. God gave David and Bathsheba, who are now married, another son, a son that the Bible says the Lord loved. The Lord gave him a name through the prophet Nathan. Jedidiah means beloved of the Lord. David gave him a name. The name in Hebrew is Shlomo. We know him as Solomon. He was the boy to comfort the grieving parents. In fact, we have, one, we have recorded prayers of David for at least three of his sons. One died a rebel, another died an infant, and another became the greatest king in the history of the world. You must trust the sovereignty of God when you pray for your children. You must. And could I encourage you, please don't be arrogant to think that your children are a little more special because they're yours. They were never yours to begin with. They were loaned to you. They are on loan. You are the stewards of those children which includes bringing them regularly to the throne of grace for help and for favor and for God's hand. And can I encourage you with this? Your prayers will be used far beyond what you possibly can imagine. Your prayers for the moment, prayers for the season, prayers for a lifetime. David prayed for Solomon to have a whole heart that he may keep your commandments, your testimonies and your statutes, performing all. Did that prayer get answered? Sort of. Not exactly, Solomon obeyed the Lord for decades and then his life ends in debauchery and idolatry and polygamy. No son of David would ever completely fulfill that mandate except one. The one that the Gospels call the son of David. Revelation calls him the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, the Lord Jesus Christ, the descendant of David in whom there is no sin, there is no filthiness, who is the ultimate answer to David's prayer for Solomon. He is the ultimate answer, the answer to the prayers of Israel for a savior. We talk about parents who pray for their children. I love the fact that Christ has already prayed for you. He's already prayed for me. In his great high priestly prayer of John 17, Jesus prayed for all who would believe in him and he said, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Do you realize that Jesus Christ has prayed a prayer of favor and a prayer of mediation on your behalf already? That is so comforting. That is so comforting. And while it's my desire as your pastor that you be excellent parents, that you parent for God's glory, that is eclipsed by my desire that you know Christ and that you understand that heaven is only for those who would humble themselves and who would receive the gospel of Christ in humility and degradation of self and exaltation of Christ. Because you can be the greatest parent in the world, you can have the greatest marriage on earth, but if you do not bend the knee to Christ, it will all be for nothing. It'll all be for nothing. So let's pray for everyone, parents, children, grandchildren, to know Christ. Our Father, we thank you for the clarity of your word. So many examples, many more that we could could have looked at and many more that we could have uh, taken examples from, but we can't be here all day. 
But Lord, we praise you and thank you for all the children, even now, children who are in classrooms, Lord, and we have very often asked you for their souls, and we have asked you that every child that comes through the doors of Grace Bible Church, through whether brought in um, in a stroller or in the womb, we would pray the audacious prayer to ask you to save every single one of them. And Lord, for the parents here, I pray for the grace and mercy. I pray that they would parent for God's glory. I pray that they would honor you by obeying you and let you worry about results. I pray for the grandparents here, Lord, who probably have a a little bit more helpless role in many ways where they can't have the influence necessarily that they want. I pray that they would be great warriors on behalf of their grandchildren and that they would be lifted up to you and that you would answer those prayers. And Lord, I pray for a man or a woman here who may have done religious things, may have even prayed, may even like the word of God, may even like God's people, but has never truly bent the knee to Jesus Christ, never truly submitted to him in all things, obeying him and repenting. And so I pray for that man or woman, I pray for that boy or girl, that even now the Spirit of God would lead them to saving faith and would regenerate their hearts such that they might repent and that they might come to know you. All this so that Christ's kingdom might be advanced and that many millions of kingdom citizens would be made ready to worship him for all eternity. For his sake we pray, amen.